What was the most inspiring building or place you've ever seen? Um, there are some pretty amazing sites out there, aren't they? Um, obviously, if you go to North London, they're, they're building uh, the eighth wonder of the world as we speak. Isn't that right, Chris? No? No, right, fair enough. Uh, they're rebuilding the Tottenham Stadium. That's the eighth wonder of the world. You heard it here first. It will be, better than the other one. Um, so there are, some, there are some truly spectacular buildings and places out there. And I wonder, um, just, just call out, what is, what, what's the one place, the one building or the one uh, thing in the world that you've seen that's the most inspiring building you've ever witnessed? That's why I didn't get that at all, sorry. Taj Mahal, I've been there, yeah. What I'm going to do now is tell you if I've been there or not, and then you just sort of tick it off. Taj Mahal, yeah, anybody else? Well, I, there was two at the same time there, wasn't there? Yeah, sorry. The mountain in Israel, yeah. Brilliant. Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, brilliant. All right. Build, any particular buildings that are uh, inspiring? Or, or Sorry? Oh, okay, I won't go pronounce that. Um, Tower of London, well said, well said, brilliant. Sorry? Buck House, what's that? Oh, Buck. <laughs> Is that what, um, for, okay. St. Paul's Cathedral, anybody else? This <laughs> does bring a tear to the eye, doesn't it? Especially when she flies off of it on that zip wire. That's brilliant. That's a real special moment. All right, I think we'd better stop there. Um, <laughs> Coral's ruined it for all of you. Now, um, one of the most inspiring things I ever saw was last summer, we had the privilege of going to California. This isn't really a sermon about my holidays and where I've been around the world, although it could easily turn into that. Um, but we saw lots of great things, the Golden Gate Bridge, Yosemite, Death Valley, brilliant. But the highlight of my holiday in terms of the most inspiring thing I saw was the Hoover Dam just outside of Las Vegas. Andrew will tell you, because she didn't get it, um, why I was so amazed by the Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam is the most amazing thing you could ever see. It really is. I spent ages, it was so hot, Andrew was about to pass out, the kids were hot and irritable, um, rather than just irritable, they were hot and irritable this time. And so we went to the Hoover Dam, and it was just amazing. All that water one side, and it went down that side, and I thought, oh... You know, I felt like Piers Brosnan uh, in uh, Golden. I wanted to jump off. But, um, and it was the most amazing structure. Now, if I was to ask a question to a first century or a, 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 Jew, a Jewish person in the Old Testament, if I was to say to a Jewish person, a member of Israel from the Old Testament, what's the most inspiring building on planet Earth? Do you know what they'd say? They would say, not the Hoover Dam, it wasn't built then. They wouldn't say uh, Tower of London or anything like that. They wouldn't say anything. The one thing they would say was the most inspiring place on earth would be the temple in Jerusalem. Before Christ, God worked through the nation of Israel. Israel could only access God through a temple, a temple in Jerusalem. And in that temple was said to be where the very presence of God dwelt. Oh, look at that. Uh, that building right there, although I think that's more Herod temple that he built, um, but that's, that temple would have brought a tear to the eye of every Israelite in the time in the Old Testament. And so important is that building to Jewish people that even now they go to the Western Wall and they cry because their temple isn't there. In fact, the the term Wailing Wall is seen as an insult, actually, uh, to a Jewish person. Uh, I read that this morning and I thought, mustn't say that then. But they go to the Western Wall, the last remaining bit of that temple, and they cry because it was destroyed in AD 70. 
And 2,000 years have not had a temple in Jerusalem. We'll come back to that in a minute. For the Old Testament Jews, the Israelites, the temple wasn't just a nice building. It wasn't just a church that they turned up to on a Saturday morning or a Saturday afternoon. It was the very center of their life. It was where their spirituality was centered. Their emotions were centered there. It was their heritage. It was their identity. That temple even affected their town planning. If you were to turn to Numbers chapter 2, you would see that they arranged their life around the tabernacle, but what was the sort of pre-temple, the tent version. There were three tribes there, north, south, east, and west, all around. All 12 tribes were scattered around. The temple was at the very heart of even their town planning. For the Israelites, the temple of God was the center of their world. It was on the same site where Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And just as he lifted the knife up, God said, stop. And he gave him a ram to sacrifice. It was the very same spot that a thousand years after that, Solomon would build the first temple, the best one, the most glorious moment in Israel's history, their golden age. This temple was on the same spot when after 516 BC, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, Zerubbabel rebuilt it to great celebration when they rejoiced that they were back in God's favor. This temple for a Jewish person was a physical reminder of God's presence on earth with his people. In fact, in the most holy room, the holy of holies in that temple, where they kept the ark, was where God's presence literally dwelt in between the two angels on the mercy seat, on the cover of the ark. I think there's there we are, a picture there. And when the temple was in one piece, Israel knew that God was with them. But when the temple was destroyed, they knew that God was not happy with them and was angry with them. And it was such a significant place that when Judah was taken off to Babylon in exile, guess what they did every single day? Cried their eyes out. Psalm 137, hang on. Psalm 137, um, don't burst into song here either. says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing one of the songs of Zion. But they couldn't because they were in another country, having been taken prisoner. How can we sing songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And why do I tell you all that this morning as we come to look at Psalm 121? Because this Psalm 121 reminds us of the significance of that building, its emotional and spiritual significance. And it reminds us of what it would have meant for a Jewish man or woman to walk towards that building, that building uh, the temple, and see it for the first time, or see it again, having not seen it for months and months. This Psalm 121 is a very popular psalm. It is my aunt and uncle's favorite. I'm guessing some of you here are quite fond of it as well. No, right? <laughs> Just winsome at the back there. That's fine. Uh, but let's read it together, shall we, again. Psalm 121. If you've got it open in front of you, that would be great. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. 
Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is a favorite psalm for a lot of people, and it's no surprise, is it? It's, it really picks up the significance of this temple and this presence of God with his people. And it's an intensely personal song. It's a psalm. It's a poem designed to be sung. It's deeply personal. Ten times the writer uses words like I, my, your. This isn't written for a group of people. This is written for an individual. This is my God. This is how I feel. This is you and me and us and I. Four times they use the name of God, the Hebrew name revealed by God to Moses, Yahweh. A special name only given to Israel in the Old Testament. Everyone else would refer to him as just God. But Israel called him Yahweh, a special name revealed only to God's people. And then six times, this God, Yahweh, will be described as simply the one who watches or keeps us. And the root of the word watches and keeps is where we get the word guardian from. We've got a song with the word guardian on that we've not sung for a long time. We should have sung it this morning. That's my fault. Um, But actually, this God is personal. He's not just for a nation. He's for an individual. Whether that individual is near or far off. Whether that individual is oppressed or happy. Whether they're full of fear or having a great time. This God is with them. He is personal to them. He is their guardian. He is their God. And the beautiful truth about Christianity is that the God we worship is personal. He's a personal God. He walks with us in our darkest moments, of all the religions out there, of all the philosophical understandings of who God is, no one claims to have a personal God. Only through Christ do you know God properly. Everybody else has God over there, pretty much angry with you, and you've got to appease by being good. Only through Christ do we get this God who is good, who is personal, who you get to call Father. That's shocking. No one else claims that you can call God Father, only Christians, only followers of the only true way to that God, his son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 23, sadly only read at funerals, says the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's personal. It's good. God's with me the whole time. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Isn't that fantastic? Who can say that God does that for them? No one else on the planet, only followers of Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. The reality of knowing Yahweh, knowing this living God through faith in Jesus Christ, isn't that we have an absence of pain and trouble, but that we have the presence of that God in those times of trial. My aunt, as some of you know, is currently in a hospice, and she's terminally ill. And she's a Christian. My aunt and uncle are a wonderful example to me 
even though I didn't see much of them as I grew up, um, which is a great regret. But I went to see her this week, and uh, she was surprisingly upbeat. We had a nice conversation, although I think I wore her out. Um, but that's fairly standard, isn't it? Um, I seem to wear a lot of people out. <laughs> Don't disagree, it's fine. Um, and we sat there talking, and probably because I'm related to her, I felt able to ask questions about dying. And I said to her, what's, not what does it feel like, but what is it, what's it like? Do you feel God with you? And she said, yes, completely. God's presence is with me. And Lionel, my husband, who's, who's okay. And, and I just thought, what a wonderful privilege it is to know the living God. Because when you're dying, philosophy comes to nothing. Empty religion lets you down, but the living God is with you. I've seen it in my aunt's face just this week. The psalm begins with a question. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now that question isn't asked because the writer of this psalm doesn't know the answer. Um, it's not like, um, you know, it's not, it's not a, a sort of one of those simple questions. It's an obvious question, a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. It's not like, it reminds me of the uh, vicar, the, you know, the story of the vicar and the uh, kids at church. And he does the kids talk and he says, now children in my bag, um, I've got something in here. Can you guess what it is? It's brown and fluffy. Yeah. Have you not heard this? Some of you have, I'll tell you anyway. And then, so he carries on, he says, it's brown, fluffy, you can cuddle it if you get scared. It's got, you know, four paws. I looked at him blankly. And then he says, oh, you know, he's got big claws, likes to climb trees, and goes, Rrr! big black nose and big ears. And in the end, one boy put his hand up like that, and he said, yes. And he said, look, mate, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a teddy bear. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> And so, it, but it's a rhetorical question. He already knows the answer. You see, Psalm 121 is a worship song. It's a worshipful reminder about the truth of who this God is. Not who's going to help me, but this God is already my help. I already know it. And then he spends the rest of this psalm expanding on that rhetorical question. Where does my help come from? And then in verse 2 he says, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 2, the reason God is his help, the reason God is our help, the reason we trust in this God and above everything else is because he is the maker of everything. He is the creator God. I love the way verse 1 leads so well into verse 2. I lift my eyes to the hills, the mountains, Where does my help come from? And the answer isn't from the mountains. It's from the one who made the mountains. I had one of those very uh, uh, interesting conversations on a playground a few years ago with uh, one of the mums. And uh, we were talking and she was saying how hard her life was. She knew I was the minister here and we'd often talked about God and Christianity. And uh, she said to me, life just feels like an uphill struggle, like I'm climbing a mountain. And so I said to her, and I'm not sure, I don't know what she thought, but I said, you need to begin to trust in the one who makes mountains rather than seeing life as a mountain. I don't know what she did with that. Seemingly not a lot because it was a long time ago. (laughs) But that's the truth though, isn't it? Why do you trust God? You don't trust God because everything always goes well. We trust God, Psalm 121 says, because he is the creator of everything. Who else is there left to trust except the one that can make everything just by speaking a word? In him we trust. Genesis chapter 1 reminds us of God's creating power. By his voice alone, God called something out of nothing. I've got in my hand uh, a bucket of nothing. Anyone care to try and make something out of it? Anyone? 
It's a bit hard, isn't it? It's quite challenging. But no matter what you do, you'll never make something out of nothing. Yet the living, eternal God, who's all-powerful and present everywhere, just says, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be land, and there was land. Let there be fish, let there be birds. And it all came out of nothing. In the beginning, there was only God. And when he spoke into being, came our entire universe. By his voice, creation was made when Christ spoke, when Jesus spoke. He calmed the storm. When Jesus spoke, he cast out demons from people. He gave forgiveness. He gave hope. And when we follow Jesus Christ, the Bible calls us new creations. The reason we trust in God is that I'm being renewed, being made brand new on the inside. Our hope is found in God because only he is qualified to make life from death. And actually... Oh, there's very many people doing exams here this morning, but I want to say something to those doing exams um, because you guys are under a ridiculous amount of pressure and I'm not a big fan at all. Oh, there's so much more that should be defining you than what grade you get in a few months' time. Work hard, obviously, but what defines you should be what God thinks of you, not what an exam grade says. And so many of our young people are crushed by the pressure of getting A stars and feeling like failures when they get A's or B's, which is crazy. When I was young, a D was all right. You could scrape in that way. Bless you. I wish you lived when I, I was young when I was young. Um, but if it goes wrong in a few months' time, don't panic. Trust me, don't panic. It is not the end of your life. It may feel like it, but it is not the end of your life. When I was 16 years old, I opened my exam results, and my mum uttered these words. Don't worry, you did your best. And we all know what that secretly means. You were rubbish. <laughs> my brother didn't have the same thing. There was lots of uh, clapping and high-fiving. It wasn't really a high-five in my house at all. But, but trust someone who didn't do very well and whom the grace of God saw him through adulthood to now. It's not the end. God can make life from death. He can make success from failure. He can make hope from despair. Trust in him. Second reason we trust in God, verses 3 to 4, is that this God never rests. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The reason we trust in God isn't just that he's creator, is that he's never asleep. He's always awake. He watches, he keeps watch, he guards us. He's always with us. Jesus says himself in Matthew 28, I'll be with you to the end of the age. That means the end of everything. Forever and ever. We trust in God because he never takes a break. I heard a quote the other day that said a husband makes the best, a great best friend for his wife. And do you know why? Because he'll never reveal her secrets. And do you know why? Because he never listens anyway. <laughs> but I always listen. Always. But our God doesn't drift off when you talk to him. He doesn't stop listening because he's tired or he's got too much on or he'd rather be doing something else. Our God never slumbers, never sleeps, always watches, always guards. And then verses 5 to 6. Our God, we trust in him because he's near us in times of trouble. It says, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. Which is quite amazing. I heard actually one thing I did read was saying that... Um, a lot of the, the foreign gods around Israel, uh, some people worship the sun and some people worship the moon god. 
And so actually it's almost like the psalmist is even saying all the false gods out there, all the things they represent that you might be scared of, they can't touch you because God is your shield and your, um, and your shade. And some of us, sometimes we look at the world, we look at how bad it's getting and we think the devil's winning, I'm terrified of what's coming next. What about the Antichrist? What about this? Don't worry. Because all those things are false. Yes, those things may come But our God is our shield. He is our shade. He will not let our foot slip, even if the worst happens. This is a song of worship, sung by God's people to remember. It's not saying that in times of uh, that no trouble ever comes to God's people, but what it does when you sing this song is it reminds you the reality of trusting in the God who's with you, even in the storm itself. And this song, like so many we sing on a Sunday morning, is there to declare the truths about who that God is. And that's what worship is, isn't it? We don't just sing on a Sunday morning because it's nice. We sing because we want to declare the truths of God to the darkness around us. We say to the devil when we sing, shush, this is the truth. You get going. This is who God really is. We declare to the devil himself about Christ being the king of kings. He is the saviour. We declare to ourselves a higher truth to trust in than that of daily life. And if you wake up every morning or every evening, you read your Bible and pray, that's brilliant. But there's one thing you should add to your daily devotions. And you may feel self-conscious, but don't be. You should add singing to your daily devotions. You can do it privately. (laughs) But if you pray and you read the Bible, brilliant. But you should sing as well. Even if you get in the car and ramp it up so loud you can't hear yourself, you should sing because there's something special in there as well. In fact, I want to read to you um, a part of 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, which is one of my favorite, um, I say that every week, every verse is my favorite verse, isn't it? Um, But they're all inspired, so that's fine. Um, But 2 Chronicles tells us about the power of worshiping God in the Old Testament. Uh, Jehoshaphat um, was the leader of the southern kingdom. He's surrounded by three nations that are about to descend on Judah and wipe them off the face of the earth. And we read in verse 18 of chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles, it says, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground. So all these people are coming at them. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites of the Korahites and the Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and all the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army. They didn't go out with might, they went out with worship first. And they cried out, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Sur, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men of Mount Sur to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Sur, they helped to destroy one another. It's an analogy for us, I believe now, that actually when we praise and declare out loud the truths of God I believe we fight the good fight a little bit I believe some of that darkness that's in your heart that brings you down just can be lifted when you declare the praise of God in song do it, I'll give you a challenge this week to sing very loudly just you and God, really let let the guard down a bit and then verse 7 
We trust in God because the Lord will keep you from all harm. And then into verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. And I love that final verse. Why is God to be trusted? Not just because of his power and his presence and his care, but because he is an everlasting God. God is eternal. He will always be with us to the very end of the age. People often say, who made God? No one. God is the uncreated creator of everything. And we get to know him. We get to call him Father. But better than that, we get to call him Abba Father. Do you trust in God in your time of need? His qualifications are clearly set out in this psalm. And you know, some of you here, I've had the privilege of watching you trusting God in some horrendous moments. Some of you here have gone through some truly difficult times. And it's been my privilege to pray with some of you, to talk with some of you. But it's been my greatest privilege to see your faith in this God, this everlasting God, to watch him shade you and shield you and come through for you. And that's been my greatest privilege in these eight, seven and a half years that I've been here, to see the eternal God work in your lives. There is nothing better. And so before we finish, I want to just come back to that first verse, uh, verse 1 of, chapter, of this psalm. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? What are the hills he's talking about? In your mind, you're probably just thinking hills in the distance, but they must mean something. This is a, a poetic song. There must be some meaning to those hills. Well, a few people offer some suggestions. Some people say the hills that he's talking about represent a place to go and run to, you know, run for the hills. So this guy's terrified, and he says, I lift my eyes to the hills. I'm going to run. I'm terrified. Who's going to help me? Another person said the hills refer to a place of of fear, because this is where robbers and outlaws hang out. That as he looks at the hills, all he can see is terror and says, who's going to save me? Another person said that the mountains simply remind us of the God that made them, because he's bigger than those mountains. And maybe there's a case for all three, depending on what you're going through. But I think the answer is probably something different. This psalm is known as a, psalm, a song of ascent, as in going up. And there, and there are 15 psalms that are called psalms of ascent or songs of ascent. And they would have been sung at the three main Jewish feasts when Jews from all over the place and all over the world were encouraged and told to come to Jerusalem, come to the temple to worship the living God. And as they got there, one of two things happened with these 15 songs, these songs of ascent. They were either sung by the Levites as they walked up 15 steps, 15 songs, 15 steps, into the temple, or they were sung by every Israelite as they walked towards the temple. Remember what the temple is, the place where God's presence rests. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be walking towards Jerusalem and singing in Hebrew? What a wonderful language. I lift my eyes to the hills. The temple is on something called the Temple Mount. It is on a hill. To look up and see the hill where the presence of God actually rests. How great it would be to come from all over the world, whether you're oppressed or struggling or or down, and see the temple and say, that's where God is. I'm going there now. That's the one that's going to save me. And I'm walking to him today, right this second. Can you imagine the hairs on your neck standing up? Because you are soon going to be very near the presence of God. 
Wouldn't it have been brilliant to have been in that train of people singing this song with all your might? I lift my eyes to the hills, to the temple where God is. But the sad thing is, they only got to do it three times a year. Three times a year, they got to have the hairs on the back of their necks stand up as they marched towards Jerusalem and the presence of God in the temple. Well, guess what? You haven't got to wait three times a year to feel that emotional presence of the living God. Because where's the temple? It's no longer in Jerusalem, is it? It was destroyed in AD 70. 2,000 years have come and gone, and no one's rebuilt it. Do you know why? Because it is now obsolete. The temple in Jerusalem is no longer necessary to know the living God. Because as Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. There is no need for a temple in Israel because Christ is a better one. And what the Jews could only do three times a year, you and I can do three times a day, 300 times a day. In fact, what we can do every single day is lift our eyes to the mountains where God's presence is in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit in spiritual worship. Is life bringing you low this morning? Are you down Well, you don't have to wait for some special event to be lifted high. You just need to look at Christ Jesus. Do you have a moment in your life when you lift your eyes up to the King of Kings? Or are they always down? Do you have that dynamic in your daily routine where you allow the truths of God for the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because you think this is my God, he is mine, and I am his? Where do you go for help when you've had enough? Do you go to the gym? Do you go to the pub? Do you reach for the instant gratification of pornography or something else? Or do you sing your heart out, the truths of God? Do you declare the promises of God until all you are is looking up rather than down? Let me give you a challenge and me. This week, find five promises of God that means something for you particularly. Just five, one for each finger, so you can remember them. Memorize them, sing them, say them out loud to yourself in the mirror every single day until they're in here, not just in here, so that when the devil attacks and darkness falls, you can say, no, no, that's my God, I trust in him. Until all you are is standing up. We have an amazing privilege through our saviour. And so often we forget it. But let's never forget that we can go into the presence of God every single day. And that is an amazing thing. We're going to sing maybe just one song as we finish. Always sing both songs as we finish. Let me sing one song. One song. But let's pray first before we sing our final song. I'll let you choose, Pat. Should we stand before we sing together? And in fact, can I ask you just to close your eyes just for a moment. And just as we get ready to sing just our final song together, 
just with our eyes closed, even if you don't want to take part, that's okay. But maybe some of you here this morning, or some of us here this morning, are feeling particularly down. And just in your mind, if there is something that's dragging you down, just, just look at it, just in your mind, just try and picture what it might be. It might be representative as an exam sheet. It might be something else. And no doubt as you look at that, you're probably looking down at this precise moment. And just in your mind's eye, just see that thing. And let's just say, where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? But it's not a rhetorical question this morning. It doesn't have to be a question of desperation and fear. Say in your heart, my help comes from the Lord. And just in your mind's eye, let go of it. And then in your mind's eye, lift your eyes up to heaven, to the throne of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Picture all the angelic beings, all that light, all that glory. And let's just say together, Father God, keep my eyes lifted high, even when life drags me low. Thank you, Lord, that you are the King of kings. You are my God, that I can trust in you no matter what happens. Thank you that you are the only one qualified to bring life from death, to calm the storm, and that you are my God, Abba, Father. I love you, Lord, and I want to follow you. Help me to know your word, to hide it in my heart, to be filled with your spirit, and to walk towards your presence every day. In Jesus' name, amen.